Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Addictive Pod. My name is Adrian, and today I'm so lucky, guys, I have a really cool guest for you today. Maybe you haven't heard of his name before, but maybe you've heard of his book. It is The Sarcastic Big Book, and he also is the host of a podcast, Recovery Radio Podcast, uh, KMP3000 Oaks. No idea what that, that means. This guy's hilarious. He is so raw and so down to earth. And the way he just brings humor to the topic of recovery is something that I really like because it can be depressing sometimes, some of these topics. But my guest today really gets it. He's been sober for over 20 years now. No, over 30 years. My bad. So I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Take some notes. And without further ado, please join me in welcoming Clay F. Clay F., welcome to the Addictive Pod. I'm so happy to meet you, man. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Big fan of your show, like I was just telling you a bit before uh, we hit record here. And um, you're a man of mystery. I think I I know very little about you. At first, I thought you were a male model. Um, (laughs) I genuinely thought that you were like a really arrogant male model who just was like doing swimsuit like calendars every day. And then I, you're right about, you're right about all of it, except the arrogant part. <laughs> um, I, I am a swimsuit model. A lot of that is because of the size of my, um, <laughs> I was so confused. Then one episode you were like, Hey, I'm just going to go, uh, going to go bench a, a car. And I was like, all right, all right. This guy, <laughs> this guy is a funny guy. No, I make a lot of jokes about that with all due respect to male models because it's just the idea is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> that was funny. It's just so funny to me. Um, the ending of your the ending of every episode, just uh, living a life that was worth saving. Um, I want to hear how you got there. I want to hear um, why your life needed to be saved in the first place. And um, when did when did alcohol really enter the scene for you? So alcohol entered the scene for me when I was nine years old, and it's just crazy to think about when I see a nine-year-old now. I just can't fathom it. But when I was nine, I had my first drink, and it was a can of Tecate that I stole. And I loved it so much. I loved um, – I got drunk, and I started to drink uh, whenever I could. And by the time I was 11, I used to have this bed that had three drawers, drawers underneath the bed. And you could pull out the middle drawer and you could pull out all the drawers, but I pulled out the middle drawer and there's all these shelves kind of, and I built, I kind of put together this fully stocked bar. <laughs> Did you, were you and, working off of a model? Were your parents uh, heavy drinkers at all? My parents drank um, every once in a while, but. I was not around any alcoholism. Um, I wasn't. I mean, my parents split. I went from having a really stable, seemingly uh, upbringing to having literally no parenting whatsoever. And, you know, the big book, which I'll talk about more later, it doesn't show any interest in why we become alcoholics. It doesn't matter. It's like my friend Dave talks about how if you can't, if, if you need, gla- if you can't see, understanding why you can't see is not going to give you sight. 
you need to wear glasses. Mm-hmm. And the big book is like that. It's it doesn't either you're an alcoholic or you're not. And in the big book, we become alcoholics, but I've subscribed to what the big book says. So, I mean, I don't know how much my environment played into it. I'm sure it played into me wanting to drink and, but I became an alcoholic for sure. What was going through your head at that point as you're sort of stalking your first bar? Is it just an exciting thing or did you have a thought in your mind that it was probably wrong and that you needed to hide it? Well, I knew it was wrong because I knew I had to hide it and I knew I wasn't supposed to be drinking. And, but I didn't think that I was doing it because I was unhappy. I really didn't. I mean, I thought that I was doing just fine. And I thought I was doing it. The conversation I had with myself at that time was this is exciting. Um, I kind of built the bar. Um, well, I was in, we spent some time in Vegas when I was growing up. So, and I thought that was very sexy. I loved, hmm. I loved everything about it. I love the smell of smoke. I love the, the crazy heat in the air conditioning. When you walk into a casino and, I remember when I was a little boy, I walked into the Flamingo and, and um, the, the air conditioning hit me in the face and it was all these pink bright lights. And then on the way home, Hotel California was on, they're talking about, um, they said, you know, mirrors on the ceiling and pink champagne and ice. For some reason, I connected all these things when I was little and that was what I wanted my bar under my bed to kind of look like. So at the time it was really sexy and romantic and I didn't think that I was doing anything that was, that should be considered bad. I thought it was really fun and it, and it, uh, I loved how it made me feel. How often would you, would you say you drank at this age? As much as I, as much as humanly possible. Um, wow. Yeah. So you're I just mean, right, I, right off the bat, just going for it. Yeah. But you know, as much as humanly possible was, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, um, for, for a while. Based on your and supply. Based on the supply. <laughs> and Humble uh, beginnings. Humble beginnings, you know, just drank what I could. Where did that take you? Where did, um, as you're going into high school, as you're maybe getting a bit older and coming across other people who are discovering drinking, how do you respond? So I was always kind of surrounded by people who, I mean, it sounds crazy to say that I was at a bar in my bedroom when I was 11 and I was like kind of starting to live like an adult, but I always found people to do that with me who are, um, there's always someone, one or two people who were my age, who were along for the ride. And, and um, when I got into, I started getting F's in school I just didn't care. And um, I started drinking just more and more escalated as I was able to get more. And then by the time I was in high school, I knew, I knew there was a big problem. And I was, I was, I was seeing the love of my life. You know, that girl, you know, that one, and she was a psycho. She was, can I cuss on this podcast? Oh yeah. Go for it. Uh, 
she was just a fucking bitch. She was terrible. <laughs> she was awful. And I was madly in love with her. And she was a rotten human being. And she was beautiful and sexy and faithless and evil. And but I was, she was everything. And, you know, our, our relationship was we'd steal something, we'd steal a car and get busted and sent to AA. And, um, you know, through throw beer bottles at each other's faces, and, and then <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> you know, that's you know, that's the one. You know, you know what I mean. That's that's when you know when you're ducking a a, a a beer bottle. You know, you're in the right. So you know, she's the one. They you know sent it. you to they sent you to AA even in high school. Well, her mom was in AA. That's okay. why I talk about her because her mom was in AA, and her mom had 17 years at that at that time and so that we would get sent there and um and you know so i started going AA when i was like 15 16 and i just thought it was a joke you know i mean to find somebody less interested in any of that was just not possible so i'd go there drunk and high and and um i did drugs too i smoked marijuana like a lot um used to smoke model glue which is I've come to see is kind of rare, but I would pour model glue on cardboard and and uh, light it on fire and smoke it like a harmonica through the holes in the side and you can hear your brain cells, you know, Jeez. just going permanently <laughs> while you're doing that. And um, but I just wanted to feel different. I just wanted to. I just did not want to feel how I felt. And so, but then I started to lose things that mattered to me. Like, um, I started to, um, I started to really lower my standards for myself. It was easier than quitting drinking and quitting doing what I was doing. So originally I was going to make films. I used to film all these things. And then I got, became too drunk to do that. I went to these acting classes in Beverly Hills and got too drunk to do that and and started started to, you know, recalibrate my dreams for myself. And I was just going to be a, I was just going to operate the tilt world at a traveling carnival. Big dreams, big dreams, huge dreams. I thought that was a dream. I thought that sounded amazing. You know, <laughs> blast music and have sex with whoever you want, and and then leave town. <laughs> so, but. But then when I was 17, um, I was, I became, what happened was I became a daily blackout drinker. And um, were you still living at home at this point? I was still living in a home and I was still living with my mom who was hardly ever there. And she ended up um, moving in. Somebody moved in who was also an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. And um, she would stand between the two of us and we'd both be drunk and wanting to kill each other. And, but um, I started to become a daily blackout drinker and, you know, I got my driver's license and the first two weeks I had my driver's license, I had, I got arrested three times and I got in two accidents. And back then, and because I was a minor, it was much more lenient than it is now and would be if I had been an adult, but you know, they took my car, they got, I, my license got suspended, all this stuff, and a lot of close calls, a lot of 
grace. You know, I used to drive drunk a lot and so much grace. I mean, anytime I think I deserve something or something's not going my way or I'm getting a rough break, I, I just remember that the amount of hours I spent driving in blackouts with people in my car even, um, it's not, you know, I'm not in jail for manslaughter or I didn't kill, I did not kill anyone because I'm cool or smart or rad or anything like that. It's just all grace. Yeah. Yeah. That could have gone way worse for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. So then what happened was my family, uh, my mom said, my mom and my sister said, we're not, we can't, we're leaving. We're leaving California and we're not inviting you. And I was in high school and they left and that was it. And then I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And they said, figure it out. You have to figure it out. Wow. And I hated them for doing that. It probably saved my life. So they left. I started running a room. I um, was drinking all the time. I was pretty unemployable. Not pretty unemployable. I was unemployable. I mean, I would get a job for a day or two and then I would get fired or the not carnival. Show up or... The carnival didn't work out. Carnival, not dang it. <laughs> Too professional for me. Wow. <laughs> and um and then I became homeless. And there was a movie theater I used to live in. And uh I'd live in my car and in the movie theater, and nobody even wanted me to. Nobody even put me on their couch after a while is even it got to that point. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's what it was like. And then on September 10th, 1989, and I know the date because it's written in my original big book, I went to a meeting kind of really in the worst shape I'd ever been in at that point, I was kind of getting lost. And a man outside named Otto, um, he was very present and he, and he, and he, uh, he said, what are you doing here? And at, at, in 1989, there were not a lot of young people. I was 18 years old. I was basically like a beautiful woman at that time. I had like really long, blonde, beautiful hair. I weighed like, almost nothing. And I, and I, and I was just, I didn't, it did, I didn't fit in in any way at that time. Everybody was there, seemed like was there anything like Alateen at that point or no, if there was, I didn't, I didn't know about it. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a young people meeting that was just starting and there was like four people in it. And it was terrifying. Yeah. So, but I went to this meeting and this guy was there and he gave me a big book and he said, you know, a year from now, we'll give you a cake. And I was like, oh, yeah, definitely, you know, for sure. I mean, I couldn't go one day at that point. I just couldn't. I would come out of blackouts just sitting in parking lots, waiting to steal or buy alcohol, come, come out of blackouts being, in, one time I came out of blackout being baptized <laughs> Wait, in a black what? church. Yeah. I'm not oh, black and I didn't God. go to church and I was in a church. 
in, uh, in Hollywood being baptized. And one time I came out, came out of a blackout in a different state. And came out, one time I came out of a blackout in a creek being robbed. I mean, it goes on and on. Yeah, you're not in control at that point. It's just a, just a whirlwind of where drinking is taking you. Yeah, it was bad. And, um, but he said, so, but he said, I'll give you, we'll give you a cake in here. And I just thought that's impossible, but okay. And I left and drank more and don't remember too much about the next 40 days, but my sobriety date is October 19th, 1989. What brought you, what brought you back? So October 19th, 1989, I'm, I'm coming out of a blackout. It's like a Thursday afternoon. What had happened is I had drank a bottle of Long Island iced tea in a, in a fifth of gym in like, in like 15 minutes, blacked out, um, got in a car, came out of the blackout on standing on some street, screaming at people. They were like, fuck you. I was like, fuck you. I had no idea what we were talking about. I looked down on my hand, I have a bloody clump of hair. I don't know whose it is. There's a guy, a couple of houses over. He's like, get over here. What's wrong with you? I said, what's wrong with you? I come over to him. He says, you need a beer. I said, yeah, I do need a beer. And he gives me a can of Budweiser. And I stood there drinking it, told him what was wrong with him. Told him what was wrong with the government. Told him what was wrong with my girls in my life, my parents, et cetera. Then I blackout. Come out of a blackout. I'm a musician, so come out of blackout playing drums, but I was so pissed off that I couldn't play drums anymore because I was too sloshed to play the drums, but my alcohol had stopped working so long ago. It didn't shut my brain off anymore. I was still mad. I was still, I could still hear my thoughts. It did not work anymore. And I was so mad. I threw one of the drums at somebody playing guitar. Now I went flying through a window. <laughs> you were and thrown? No, I threw a drum at a guy playing guitar and oh, he was standing okay. oh, next to a sliding glass door. Yeah. Oh, wow. And then I came out of the blackout and was laying in vomit. And paramedics were there and they were like, he's not breathing. He's flatlining. And then I don't remember what happened. I had delirium tremens, DTs for a long time. It seemed like months. There were these satanic monkeys coming in my window, single file. It seemed like it went on for months and months and months. And then I came out. The next thing I remember, I was driving up the street in the rain. All I heard was my windshield wiper and I had like $20 to my name and I couldn't picture five minutes in front of me. I was going back to that meeting where that guy Otto was. And um, he was there again and he said, how long do you have? About a month. Which now that I'm sober for almost 32 years, it's so impressive to me that not only he remembered me, but he remembered roughly how long I should be sober. Mm. It was very out of self. Mm -hmm. If that man had been standing outside talking about himself with someone else, talking about his day, talking about complaining about what he's being made or bragging about it or trying to get laid or something like that, I would be dead. Yeah, he knew you and he remembered something and actually had the ability to know something about someone other than himself, which you yes. didn't. Yes. And it, it changed my life. 
his attention to me was um, pivotal in my life. I don't know where I would be if that had not happened. If nothing like that had happened, I would be dead. But I believe God had that man there. He was out of himself. He was thinking of someone besides himself. And I can't talk about that too much because I think about that every time and I'm at a meeting and I'm just talking to people about that kind of stuff. I'm always looking for somebody who needs somebody to be present for them. Mm-hmm. So anyways, and uh, he said, how long do you have? And I said, I have a day. And I said, I, I'm new zero days. I'm drunk, you know, like I'm drinking. I'm, I don't know. And he said, we do that. And he looked at me and it was the first time I made eye contact with someone in years. We just stared at each other. And then I went to the meeting and I was sitting in the back and I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't going to introduce myself. I had never done that. I was not going to say anything. And um, they said, are there any newcomers? And a bunch of people stood up and then they sat down and then Otto turned around and looked at me and pointed at me. And he said, we have one more. And I stood up and said my name and my head got really quiet all of a sudden and um, I was sitting in the back of that meeting just looking around thinking so these people these people have not drank since the last time I was here like I couldn't fathom that Mm. I couldn't Mm -hmm. like if I were to replay my thoughts during that meeting the whole meeting was that the whole meeting was me saying hold on a minute hold on this guy hasn't drank for 40 days. Wait a minute. This guy hasn't drank for longer than that because he was sober when he met me. I was just blowing my mind. I could not comprehend staying sober for a week. Couldn't fathom it. Didn't know people did it. Mm -hmm. And did people say anything in that meeting that spoke to you as well did they talk about experiences as when they did drink you know what's interesting about that i remember one sentence from that night and it it's i think about it a lot because these days and many times thousands of times throughout the years i've thought something needs to be said a certain way somebody needs to hear something a certain way i need to say something a certain way some bullshit like that because what was said that night that changed my life really doesn't make that much sense. There was a speaker and he was up at the podium for 45 minutes and he said, there's traffic on the 405, but I don't have to drink over that today. 405 is a freeway in California that I had never been on really. Gotcha. But for some reason, that sentence was so profound to me. Hmm. I can't explain it, but for like a week, I was just like, I would repeat it. There's traffic on the 405, but I don't have to drink over that today. I couldn't believe it. Hmm. And so every time I'm always thinking how a meeting's supposed to go or what's supposed to be said, I always remember that. Shut up. I don't know what people <laughs> need to hear. I don't know how God's working in their life. Who knows? Doesn't matter. I don't have business. So that's. Your brain obviously wasn't at its uh, peak condition in this whole state, but 
it's interesting what kind of slipped through and what actually resonated such like very simple things very um but also earth-shattering things for your mental state at the time yes very simple you know we do that um there's traffic on the 405 but i don't have to drink i don't have to drink over that today and that's kind of all i heard that night and it was earth-shattering they both were what happened after the meeting where did you go after the meeting I had an experience that I don't share that often, but I had a spiritual awakening kind of the way that Bill Wilson described his a hot flash spiritual experience. When I sat in the car, something happened to me that happened about, it was so quick. It was like the length between these two snaps. And I knew two things about it. It wasn't me and I could never explain it to anyone, but there was this bouquet of fingers of blame that I was at that point in my life that turned around. I saw them. I felt them turn around and point at me. And I felt there was no doubt in my mind. There was some kind of God that was love. I had done nothing good. I had done nothing to warrant that kind of experience. I had drank myself into the ground and treated everybody like shit. And it was shocking. I mean, I was just, it was that moment, that little moment was powerful enough to have sustained me still to this day. It's kind of like it was the only moment in my life I was humble. I was truly humble. And then I thought I was humble. And then of course I wasn't. <laughs> and the last 32 years has been an attempt for me to get back to that state of mind that I was in that night where I was so out of, I was so, you know, the original first step, which is in a story in the big book called he sold himself short. The, the you know, the, the original six steps are there and you know they only did six and step one was complete deflation that was it there's no there was nothing else are you are you fucked i mean do you get it like are you out of ideas i mean i, I don't know if you experience complete deflation you know when you hear that phrase I've, i know what that is mm -hmm. but that's where i was at and so I think it was like, I was so deflated that I like walked into like God's den and he like put his hand on my shoulder. And I was like, Oh my God. And then I ran out and never have been able to get back in there. <laughs> but that was what I was going to ask if there's been any other experiences in recovery oh, where you felt that kind of presence. Yes. Yes. They have been the result of anyways, right after that, just to finish the thought, I went, I rushed over to a donut sure. shop where there were some people I knew that were there and I started preaching. <laughs> what? Yeah. Like about yep. God. There's a God. There's a God. There's no <laughs> doubt in my mind. There's no doubt in my mind. I still have to do. No way. Crazy. This is crazy. But I forget what I was going to say. What was I going to say? Oh, uh, if there were any other experiences like that in recovery. Oh my gosh. 
I mean, there's too many to count. They've, but they've come as a result of the application of spiritual principles. You know, I've never had them praying. I've never had them in a meeting. I've never had them in meditation. I've never had them because of something somebody said or I've always had those experiences as I am applying spiritual principles. There's been a lot. So what happened next was I, I mean, there's a lot, but I slowly started to attend meetings on a regular basis. I didn't, at first, I didn't want to, I was afraid. Nobody was taking me. I had to dig deep and bring myself there. A lot of times I'd bring myself to a meeting and I wouldn't have the courage to go in. I would sit outside. Did you tell anybody in the meetings about that experience you had in the car? I don't remember. I don't think that often I did. I didn't, I was really bad at talking to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just, I didn't, a conversation with someone else was overwhelming. It was just, yeah. especially strangers. I was just like, I don't, it took me a while. I had no help here, you know, from my family. I was, I was not equipped to be in society in a lot of ways. I was just not, I hated authority. I was terrified of people. I was angry at everything. I was emotionally unstable. I was charming. And, um, but eventually I did start, I did recognize that I was going to drink again unless I did something. I couldn't just go to meetings. And so I started to look for somebody who would take me through the steps. And it took me a while to find somebody because I was already a complete fraud when I came to AA. And I was very turned off by people who talked about God and this and that. And then in the parking lot, they're like that fucking bitch. I didn't want to be, I was already like that. I was already one way with you, a different way with you, a different way with you, you know, but you could see it in other people really clearly as well. I guess you had a good, you had a good nose. I could see it so clearly. I needed somebody beyond that. I needed somebody who was like, I needed something I'd never seen. I needed somebody who was going to be all the stuff we were talking about in these meetings incarnate. I wanted to, I had to see it. I had to see somebody who was talking about the same thing in a meeting as they were out of meeting, who was living what they were talking about. That was what I needed. And um, I needed somebody who was going to, because I was already like that. Do you know what I mean? I was, yeah. I was, I was very like that. I, I couldn't, I needed something. And you knew you, you knew you needed something different at that point. Like you were really facing, you're facing death and insanity. Yes. yes. And so I met, <clears throat> and so I asked this man, who looked like a biker frog, kind of really short and kind of gruff and <laughs> always yelling and, but not, mad but i was kind of just 
I'd say, can you, can you talk? And he'd say, yeah, you want me to lie to you? Or you want me to tell you the truth? That was how he'd start every conversation. It was so annoying. But I asked him to sponsor me. And he said, it'd be an honor and privilege. Can't get you sober and I can't get you drunk. And he handed me a pamphlet, questions and answers on sponsorship. Read this. Call me tomorrow. He was. I like that. Can I just back yeah. up a sec? I can't get you sober. I can't get yeah. you drunk. I I really like that, and I think anybody sponsoring should just write yes. that down uh, every yes. day. Yes, <laughs> isn't that? It was so helpful. Damn. Yeah. He was really helpful to me because he said right away. He said, "Don't put me on a pedestal. I will kick it out from underneath me." He said. Mm-hmm. Don't put anyone in Alcoholics Anonymous on a pedestal ever. We are all just drunks. And he said, I will not ever try to pretend I know something I don't. If you ask me something and I don't know the answer, I'll point you to someone who might. But you need a power greater than yourself. And I'm going to show you what I did. I'm going to lay the kit of spiritual tools at your feet for you to inspect and use if you want but that's it. And I'm so grateful for that because, you know, I asked him, do you want me to call you every day? He said, why the fuck would I want you to call me every day? <laughs> he said, you have to call God every day. That being said, yeah, I did talk to him every day, but it wasn't out of a sense of obligation. It was because we developed a, a friendship and I needed redirection on a regular basis for a while but he wouldn't demand that no. from you that was out of your own need no requirement he had no he had, he was right out of the big book the big book says check out this check out how crazy this is the big book says make it clear that someone you're working with is under no obligation to you whatsoever it says don't be offended if they want to call it off don't chase them don't push them don't prod them ever they don't, they're not committed to you. They shouldn't ever be. That should be clear. Don't ever talk down to someone. Don't ever talk to them from a moral or spiritual hilltop. No lectures. No people to please. I mean, that was that was how my sponsor was. And, I'm, and it's, it's just, it was what I needed. How did you react to this, the, the, this message, especially the spiritual toolkit let's say of uh of the steps what were your thoughts going into this were you eager to try it or were you very skeptical and thought it was not going to help you i didn't think any of it was going to help me i didn't think even after that experience i didn't i was a flickering atheist yeah. i mean it was yeah okay so that makes more sense then when you said that bit in the car and then you said that was sort of enough to last me till yeah. now I found that hard to believe, to be honest, because <laughs> I think that it's so, so easy to slip back into the into the like sort of habitual mindset of atheism, let's call it selfishness. I mean, that was my experience for sure. Yeah, no, what I mean by sustain me is I has never I've never just said to myself, fuck it. Um I'm gonna I'm not gonna try this anymore. I've never gone all the way right. to that point because of that moment was so potent that it it was it's like i could never unknow that moment completely i could almost unknow it i could be hanging by a fishing line you know what i mean 
could be hanging by it like a, a smallest thread. But it's been enough to um, I've gone through horrendous things in sobriety and it's not it's not ever completely shaken me. But you were skeptical, you had oh, these yeah. doubts, and you just decided to go for it anyways and continue working with this guy and, and trying the steps. A, How did that I didn't play have a out? choice, you know? I really yeah. didn't if I felt like I had one more option, I would have done it. I mean, if I the only reason I did the steps is because my life depended on it. I was, and it still does. I mean, to live them, you know, we sat down and he was talking. The first time we sat down, he was talking. His arms were flailing all over the place. He was like, I have power and God and this and that. Blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I was just shaking and I was terrified. And I thought, this is not going to work for me. And it was like he could read my mind. And he turned to page 160. I want to say 63. And yeah, at the top, I think it's 163. It says, we know what you're thinking. Well, he, he like, he stopped what he was saying. He like opened the book to that page, pointed at it, flipped it around, slid it over to me and said, read that. And it says, we know what you're thinking. You're saying to yourself, I'm jittery alone. I couldn't do that, but you can't. You forget that you've just now tapped a source of power much greater than yourself. Hmm. And it's no longer just you trying anymore. It's no longer just you trying to figure something out or do something because you're you're incapable right. on your own. You knew that. Yes, at that I point. did. And he said, you know, he, and he showed me how I did step one and two and three, according to what's in the big book. And he said, you need to do an inventory now. Don't wait. You need to do one right now. His sponsor had 39 years at that point. That That's over wow. in like the late 40s. And so he was just really dumbed down, straight, simple message. You're blocked from a higher power. You're blocked from God. And if you don't get yeah. unblocked, you're going to drink again. One of three things is going to happen to you. One, you're going to say to yourself, I know exactly what's going to happen when I drink, but I'm going to do it anyway. Two, it's going to be different. I'm going to drink. Three, no thought at all. I'm just going to drink. If you don't get yourself unblocked, one of those things will happen to you again. Period. And there's no reason to stay blocked. Get unblocked now. He said there's nothing in the big book that says tomorrow, next week. It's all right now. May you find him now. We're doing this now. Launched. Vigorous. At once. Immediately. I mean, there's nothing. There's no, there's no waiting. And I did an inventory. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But everything I was going to take my grave was on there. And I ended up reading it to him. I did my inventory in like a day. Hmm. Were you with him as you were doing it? No. You just had some pen and paper no. and you were, or he you went on your own. Yeah, okay. I went home and did it. That's intense. Yeah. And, you know, he explained to me that back in the day, I mean, it's in the book back in the day. I mean, they, they did the steps very quickly. 
Yeah, like they were still in the hospital, yeah. kind of just sobering up, working through this. Can, can you imagine yeah. if Bill said to Bob, "You know, you you know what? You're not ready to help anybody. <laughs> I want you to be sober for a year first, yeah. or I want you to write about your character defects for like six months, and then we'll help somebody." Oh my I mean, god! No, they were oh like, god. "We got to go help people right now." Yeah. And then I, I, I mean, we're running out of time, but there's a lot to say, but then I just, just fast forward. I made my amends. There was a lot of amends to make. It was very painstaking about my amends. I had to find people, track them down, show up. It was incredible, changed me. And then it was explained. The biggest thing was it was explained that you cannot finish the steps. They're a way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, I understand why people say I did the steps, but it makes no sense to say you did something that starts with the word continued, you know, Mm -hmm. or sought. It's like, explain to me that it's like my friend recently said that like step three is like jumping rope. It's like, you're just jumping rope. You don't do step three in the morning and then put the rope down. You know, like you're jumping rope, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. It's just like constant. constant. How can I best serve thee? Uh, thy will, not mine, be done. Your will, not yeah. mine. Yeah. I do this all day. And yeah. God, it's so hard. Yeah. But, you know, it's, um, it is, but it gets easier. So this is what I want to talk to you about because I think it's, it's not that often that I have someone on this show who's been sober since, um, for as long as you have. And I've heard you talk on your podcast about, um, that experience of it just getting better. And I think that's so shocking to me for some reason. I, I think I had this belief that I will plateau and that I will get bored and it's going to actually be worse for a while. And then maybe it'll get better when I'm like 90 and I'm like a wise old Yoda. Mm. Um, but What's your experience been like? I, I want to hear more from you about what that's like and, and how the, the progress continues. Well, how do I start this? When I started to practice using the tools that are in the big book, specifically seek to understand instead of be understood. When a person offends us, we ask God how we can be helpful to them, minimally how we can think lovingly about them. That's intense. That activity alone has changed my life and made it better and better and better and better. And made me feel more and more and more connected to people, more intensely connected to everyone over time. And there's no, it's like the exact opposite of drinking. When I was drinking, it went permanently downward. It worked less and less. Hmm. And there was no end. It was permanently down. The application of spiritual principles, in my experience, is the exact opposite of that. It's permanently up, not straight up, but permanently upwards. Because Mm. part of it is when 
you are more and more easily able to go into a day seeking to contribute. If you, if you go, if I go into a day really living in the third step, which is, you know, before I did the third step, I was the customer at the counter of life, you know, hello, how's this affecting me? What's in this relationship for me? What's in this job for me? What's in this meeting for me? Hurry up my order. Hello, please. I don't like this or, you know, ding, ding, ding. Hello. I'm the customer here. I got a new job, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't really like the, you know, I agreed to a certain salary and now I'm getting paid that. And I agreed to give a certain amount of my time and effort, but I'm not giving my time and effort anymore. Now I'm complaining about, I'm, I'm going against what I agreed or however, I, I decided to be with a person and I'm complaining about them and giving them the worst of me. Hmm. It's like, oh, that's all being the customer. Like what's in this for me? You know, but step three is get on the other side of that. Now you, everyone you meet is a potential customer. Everyone, even whoever signs your checks, whomever. (laughs) I mean, it's, and that when you go into the day, the really taking that seriously, like it says, God is our employer. We have a new employer. And step three, God, we have a new employer. It's like God is like, okay, I'll solve your drink problem. In exchange, I'm going to hire you. You don't have to take the job. But then if you don't take the job, I can't promise your drinking things go okay. But if you go into the day, the customer service representative, you can't have a bad day. Because the only thing that causes me to have a bad day is when I have a picture of how it's supposed to go and it doesn't go that way. Mm-hmm. But if I'm on the other end of the counter, I'm asking God, what do you want me to do? I'll give you an example. So the world's fucking crazy. Like it's just, sure. there's, it's madness. And it doesn't matter because my job is to be a maximum service to God and the people around me no matter what's going on, no matter what. My job is to listen, to be patient, to be, expand my compassion as best I can, to seek to understand, to see what I can contribute, to ask God what, how I can be helpful. And when you start doing that, it feels better and better and works better and better. That's the thing. It works better and better over time. I've said to myself, literally a thousand times in 30 years, there's no way I could ever feel better than this. And I've been wrong every time. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. It's insane. But my message that, that I got from the big book is very clear. And it's also, I mean, it's very different to be honest. It's very, it's very, you know, the big book is if you're out of self, you can trust your thinking completely. The big book is alcoholic thinking has to do with alcohol and nothing else. The big book is don't confuse your assholeism with your alcoholism. Everybody's selfish. (laughs) The big book is 
big book's really simple and really loving and really um it's a very specific clean recipe that i am grateful to have had explained to me and shown to me by people who live it that's what i needed so i mean i'm i'm, I'm married i'm more in love with my wife right now than i ever have been mm. um known her for over 20 years um do you have any kids we have godsons hmm. yeah we have, we have godsons no kids what do you do for work if you don't mind me asking i am a male model <laughs> <laughs> we're back we're back at the beginning we made it full circle no i i do i do sub music and comedy and cool and a wee bit of counseling still i used to do that a lot of that but i don't do too much anymore cool cool yeah i think you you talked about um working in in treatment centers right yeah i used to run a treatment center mm -hmm. yeah big one it was nuts I have so many questions for you, man. This isn't fair. All right. I think uh, <laughs> it's, we're, we're already over time, but I'm so glad you came on the show and I'll definitely, um, yeah, I'll be reaching out to you again. I'm, I, I want to uh, talk to you again, maybe more in depth on the steps next time. And because I, I, I can tell that that's what you're passionate about and that's what really helped you. Yes. And I know that that's like, as much as I try and complicate it for myself and as much as in my tough times, I'm like, why is this the case? I know that, that that's the solution. And I know that that's what has helped me the most. So I'd love to talk to you more about that. And I would love that until next time, man, um, keep doing what you're doing. Keep up with the, with the podcast. Um, if you were to tell somebody who's listening right now, um, who hasn't had that kind of spiritual experience or that experience of working the steps, um, what would you want them to, to know about that experience? Follow your conscience more than anyone else is not a narrow door to get in. It seems like it is, but it's a wide door and it's broad and roomy and you can definitely do it. Just be open-minded. Well said. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. I think that I'm, I'm also uh, guilty of putting sponsors on the pedestal, putting people on the pedestal. And I think, trusting the conscience and trusting God really turning to God more is, um, is really good advice. Awesome. Clay, it's been great, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to coming back. If you'll have me. Thank you everybody so much for listening to this episode of the addictive pod. If you haven't already, please go to Apple podcasts and leave us a review. It's really helpful to build the audience in that way. And check out Clay's Instagram. So it is sarcastic.aa.book on Instagram. And I'm also going to put a link in the description to his podcast, Recovery Radio Podcast. I love this show. He is just, it's just him mainly, just talking about recovery, talking about uh, something from the big book or something from Emmett Fox's reflections. And I think no matter where you are at in your recovery, this could be helpful for you to go over and take a listen. That's all for me today. Until next Wednesday. Remember, we recover together. <laughs>